Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. It's a very nice morning this morning, I'll have to say. And today I'm taking you to a, a forum that was held by the International Bookshop They've been doing a series of forums uh, throughout the year. The last one was focused on refugees. Can we attend? Can we afford to bring them here? Was the uh, title of the forum. Some great speakers. Uh, and uh, what, so we're going to take a, a taste. We're going to take two of the speakers. Lucy Horan, who's the co-founder of Teachers for Refugees and part of the Refugee Action Collective. And we're going to follow that with uh, Julian Burnside. We're going to follow on with a taste of uh, the uh, event that was quite... Uh, was it slightly overshadowed maybe by the Victorian government's, uh, the passing of the, uh, uh, the right to die with uh, respect uh, legislation that went through Parliament. But that same week was the uh, uh, debut speech from Lydia Thorpe, the first Indigenous woman to uh, be elected to the Victorian Parliament. And uh, lots of her fellows uh, turned up for a very important and special event. And Black Betty from Black Noise Radio that uh, airs on 3CR Thursday 2 to 3 p.m. went down there and talked to her compatriots to uh, get their impressions. So we're going to hear from her. Hopefully we'll get a a proper report about what happened when uh, right-wing provocateur, as he is called, and there are other names for Milo Yiniapolis. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. We're also going to hear from Don Sutherland for the last time this year to get a roundup of what's going on, incredible things that are going on in the industrial relations area in Australia. 500 men sacked for refusing to ever cross a line. Union busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Webb Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the Community Assembly at any time of the day or night. 
For more information and details, call Workers Solidarity on 0401 516 Lucy Horan, who I have told you was the uh, co-founder of Teachers for Refugees and a member of Refugee Action Collective, was one of the speakers at the International Bookshop Forum recently. It was uh, titled, Can We Afford to Bring Bring Them Here? And uh, let's hear what she had to say. Great speaker. But I think there is a strain in the the, uh, refugee advocacy um, movement that, that sees border controls alongside um, stopping the boats or an idea that we do have to accept that boats must be stopped, um, that we cannot have irregular, if we, even if we don't call them illegals anymore, we do have to stop the irregular <coughs> maritime arrivals um, and come up with a regional solution, an orderly process somewhere out there that we then pick people in and resettle them properly at our own pace um, here. And that is something that the Refugee Action Collective um, really argues very strongly um, that that is not necessary and not not only is it not necessary, accepting those politics and accepting the idea that we do have to stop the boats is very corrosive um, to our general aims of shifting shifting the politics around refugees, shifting the fear um, and shifting the sense that deterrence is necessary. Um, so I want to argue that, and I want to argue that um, not, a, not only those, those things about the general politics, but that it's unnecessary um, and counterproductive in terms of the argument about stopping deaths at sea. Um, and finally, if I do have any time left, look at, um, look at regional solutions and what it is that we mean when we talk about regional solutions and why there is, in that, in that um, phrase, a dangerous assumption of deterrence, violence and brutality embedded in the politics of regional solutions. Um, okay, so starting with with the public opinion, because I think um, you know the the chapter in Tony's book that he referred to, I found it very um, comprehensive, um, and he summarised it, and I'll, I'll use his words um, at the end of uh, at the end of the book. Australian public attitudes, as demonstrated in Chapter 3, place a major importance on effective control of borders. This is therefore a vital ingredient in winning and maintaining public conf- confidence in the suite of policies. Um, the conclusion, I have to admit, came as a surprise to me because I, what, what I read from Tony's research and the very, the very detailed data that he provided is that public opinion is far more flexible than that, that it shifts and that it changes. Um, and, you know, Tony went through the... Um, in, in the book, if you do get a chance to read it, and I really recommend it as well, starting from um, the sympathy of refugees at the beginning of the wave of refugees who came um, as a consequence of the Vietnam War to a slight hardening against that further on and to a hardening again in the 80s. Um, and then, of course, under, under Howard in 2001, a hardening even further in response to, as he points out, Pauline Hanson and the, you know, the John Howard, we will decide who comes and what, not every, whatever he said. I hate saying it. Um, and then a tip backwards. So during the Howard era, a tip backwards in favour of um, a more, well, a condemnation, actually, and a, and a concern about the policies that they were too hard. Um, and so that flexibility, I think, is there. And it's not, it's not the case that these things are set in concrete. Um, and some of the things um, that, that Tony draws out in the book are things like um, fears of unemployment, you know, fears of, fears of um, the general, general economic insecurity, not knowing any refugees, 
um, the political context of anti-refugee sentiment. And things that I would add to that is the continual reality of bipartisan support, creating a political reality where there is no alternative. And then on the flip side to that, the enormous amount of work that refugee advocates like, like ourselves and like many people here in the audience put into changing public opinion and, and the successes that we have seen with that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess just to reiterate that public opinion, I don't, think, I don't think we can rely on that as an argument or as a rationale or as an excuse as I think it is used very frequently by, by Labor ministers um, to have a hardline deterrence um, <clears throat> politics. I just wanted to look more closely, though, at a particular moment, because I think this, was a, this is a bit of a touchstone in terms of labour policy, which is what happened in 2009, because there's, I think there's a narrative, although it's implicit more than explicit, that, um, that comes out in Tony's book and comes out from other refugee advocates, that, um, that Kevin Rudd in 2007 broke with bad policy, that he, you know, he shifted away from those horrible years of the Howard era and he was going to start afresh. But then, you know, 2009, the end of the, um, the, well, not the end, but a crisis point in the Sri Lankan Civil War, the genocide there meant that boats started coming again, um, which he, had, he hadn't fa had to face in, in 2008. In 2009, he did. And at that point, you know, public opinion just wouldn't tolerate it. You know, the boats came, public opinion shifted, and then, you know, um, Rudd, had to, Rudd had to rush to, um, to backpedal. And then we saw the race to the bottom again, which has landed us where we are at the moment. And I just want to dispute that. I, I, I really do think that we need to get this right. Because the truth is that Kevin Rudd did not break with deterrence policies. He did not break um, fundamentally with the idea of John Howard's we decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which um, they come. He did not break from mandatory detention that was still in place. Um, you know, our Christmas Island was still open and excised. Um, you know, the, the, the paranoia and the idea of people smugglers um, in particular was a really, really vehement, you know, like the, the people smugglers as the proxy for refugees was embedded in Labor policies. And the, and the idea that re refugees need to be deterred was never dismantled from Labor policy. So when the boats did start coming, when, when, the, um, when the Civil War happened and when the Afghani refugee um, flows re, um, picked up again, then the return to, Labor's return to deterrence was not pushed by public opinion, it was pushed by their own policies and it was pushed by the logic of those deterrence policies which they had never campaigned against or in, internally broken from. And we saw the Oceanics, um, Viking standoff, Merak and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, uh, the Liberals pushing, taking advantage of the fact that it was on their terrain, on their terrain of the terrifying boats, pushing and pushing and pushing until we saw, um, you know, Labor reopening offshore camps and then um, Kevin Rudd's now rewritten history of, you know, we're, we're going to keep, keep these people out forever. If you decide to come to Australia, we'll, we'll put you in um, PNG and you'll never come to Australia. Um, so I think in, we are, I think it's important to get that right because it's important to know that Labor never broke. And it's very important in this particular moment, I think, because it, it feels like we are in a very similar moment to what we were in in the final years of the Howard government. Maybe I'm being optimistic, but I feel like we are seeing, we are about to see the end of the Turnbull government. I really hope that's true. But what happens with Labor at this point, if there is a break and if there is going to be any decisive shift away from a cycle of 
brutality and an abating of the Liberal Party against the um, against the Labor Party. You won't you won't stop the boats. You'll reopen the people smugglers trade, etc., etc. The politics of that and the politics of saying it is not a problem if those boats come. We will welcome boats. We will not sink boats. We will rescue them. Those politics need to be laid now. Otherwise, we are going to get the same thing happen again, um, and that's something that I'm very concerned about. And I think that's the problem with accepting um, accepting that uh, the, 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 um, that public opinion has has to um, that that public opinion is the thing that has driven deterrence politics that it can't change, and that Labor it's acceptable for Labor to have those kind of policies. I just wanted to deal quickly. I hope I've, I've got time still uh, um, with the deaths at sea argument. I don't think I actually don't think that this is a big argument in um, in in amongst people who are concerned about refugees at the moment. Although I know absolutely it will return if if, if boats um, if we are aware of the boats that are coming once again. Um, but I think the thing is, if you can tow, and I think we can see that now, if you can tow boats back, if you can create a ring of steel around Australia and propel them back into the Pacific to God knows where, then you can bring them here. You can rescue the boats. Okay. One minute. Um, I won't go into the details of that, but there are, and maybe people can um, later in the in the discussion. But in 2012, you know, the Christmas Island boat crash, that 16 distress calls were made to um, the Australian rescue crew. They ignored them. They they said that that was refugee patter. 150 people died later, and that was the excuse for reopening offshore detention. So it's hypocrisy and lies, um, mainly mainly shamefully from from some key Labor politicians that led that. Final final thing about. Um, about regional solutions, because again, I think I think there's there's a secret politics within regional solutions. If it was the case that you know every every country in our region was on some kind of equal power footing and was equally wealthy as Australia, and you know it was just the case that Rohingyans showed up in one country, you know sat down with the UNHCR, you know had their work rights and every other right. Um, valued while they were resettled and then they could nominate which country in the region that they wanted to settle in. If that was if that was the terrain that we were working on, potentially it might work. But that, we all know. We all know that that is not the situation. We have a situation where Australia is the biggest and most powerful country in the region. And when it says regional solutions, it means every other country in the region is to take responsibility for the refugees. And maybe at the end of that, once you've processed them all and put up with them and warehoused them and done whatever evil things that we want you to do to them, then we might pick a couple to resettle here. Um, and I think every time any politician in Canberra says regional solutions, that's actually what they mean. And I think that, that we need to know that, that regional solutions need to start with Australia. Australia needs to be stepping up and accepting refugees. When there is a, when there is a genocide in Burma, why shouldn't those refugees come to Australia first? We're the best equipped country to deal with them. They need to be welcomed and we need to bring them here. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast, and that was Lucy Horan, who is the co-founder of Teachers for Refugees, and she was at a forum at the International Bookshop the other week. Um, the book that she's talking about is Tony Ward's uh, Bridging Troubled Waters, Australia and Asylum Seekers. It's an erudite piece. Tony Ward is a research fellow at Melbourne Uni, uh, and uh, he was also one of the speakers. Uh, and uh, perhaps during the summer season, we'll hear what Tony Ward had to say. The book again, Bridging Troubled Waters, Australia and Asylum Seekers. Let's get it, go on and hear what Julian Burnside had to say. This issue is about what Australia is like. 
It is what sort of country we are. And I'm very, very glad that Lucy referred to um, John Howard's We'll Decide. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstance in which they come, which, if it's an expression of migration policy, was impeccable. But, I mean, you know, all of us live in a house, okay, I assume. Um, so we're entitled to say, you know, if I'm entitled to decide who comes to my home and the circumstance in which they come. Perfectly reasonable. And if you're fed up with receiving visitors, you could say, I don't want visitors until Thursday week, which would be a little bit unfriendly, but still reasonable. So next morning, a kid runs up to your front door and knocks on the door and says, please help me, there's a man with a big knife chasing after me. You could say, come back on Thursday week. <laughs> but that would not be what it is to be Australian. The fact is that refugees who land on our doorstep have a different claim on our ethical responsibilities than the indiscriminate mass of refugees offshore who also need help. Of course we can decide who comes to the country and the circumstances in which they come, but if they get here and they need our help, do not kick them in the head. Um, that's, now, what are we doing in response to people who come here by boat? People who exercise the right acknowledged by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 14, a document which we helped prepare and which was embraced in the General Assembly of the United Nations on the 10th of December 1948 with an Australian in the chair. Um, what do we do to people who exercise that right? Well, we punish them, we brutalise them, we lock them up indefinitely, we throw them off into offshore camps at vast expense. And how do we justify it? We say we're worried about people drowning. Well, forgive me for being blunt, that's bullshit. Our Politicians who say they're worried about people drowning are lying to you. They are dishonest hypocrites. Scott Morrison is probably the worst of them. Peter Dutton is a close second. But they are lying to you. They're so worried about people drowning that if they don't drown, they're punishing them. That's what they're doing. The people on Manus and Nauru right now have been there in hellish conditions for just on four years, some of them more than four years, and we do that to them in order to express our concern about them drowning. There are people on Manus now who've said, in detention I'm dying every day. If I drowned at sea, it would be just once. Well, that's, that's what they think about our so-called Christian charity. We call them illegal. Bullshit again. They are not illegal. They have not broken any law. They've exercised a right which we acknowledged in Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There is nothing in the Refugees Convention that suggests that arriving uninvited in a country is illegal, it is simply untrue to say that they are illegal. And this country has been deceived by politician after politician on both... Well, actually, no, the coalition have called them illegal. Labor didn't quite get around to correcting them, which is a pity, because they could have really brought the thing to the surface. But coalition has since... 2001 have been calling boat people illegal in order to make it seem reasonable to push them offshore and call it border protection so that your average punter thinks we are being protected from criminals, which, if it was true, might make sense, but it's a lie. We have been lied to, and because we've been lied to by our politicians, we have betrayed our national character. 
That's all due to John Howard and all the politicians who followed him and frankly the gutless Labor politicians who haven't had the courage to stand up and say what we are doing is wrong. This is not a political issue, it's an ethical issue. It is all about ethics. Um, they, what did Tony Abbott say? We've lost control of our borders. Again, absolute nonsense. Um, one of the fascinating uh, figure graphs in Tony's book shows the number of pe people who arrived by air because they were able to get a student visa or a, or a tourist visa or whatever other sort of visa and as soon as they pass, get a clear passport control, they apply for a protection visa. So the aeroplane people, in every year, in the last 20 years, in every year but one, they have exceeded boat people in number and they go into the community. They're not locked up. They're not the target of vilification by the government. We are completely untroubled by their presence because we're not actually a tiny, crowded continent, are we? Uh, the aeroplane people succeed in their asylum claims in fewer than 40% of cases. Boat people who are vilified as illegals and who are locked up and mistreated succeed in their asylum claims in more than 90% of cases on average. Typically, boat people are much more likely to be genuine refugees, genuinely entitled to legal protection than are people who arrive by aeroplane. Who are the ones we brutalise? The boat people. It's beyond belief. Anyway, it's not about losing control of our borders. The, the largest number of boat people, people arriving here without an invitation, without a visa, the largest number was, I think, in 2012, just short of 25,000 people. In the same year, Australia received round about five million plus people coming through the borders for tourism, study, business, or Australians returning home, which means that border control worked in about 99.5% of all cases. Well, when I was at school, that was a pretty good mark. Tony Abbott thinks it's a, it's a loss of border control. Well, bullshit. Uh, it's astonishing. I have recently been involved in a very interesting exercise. Some people in Sydney who are making a film about the refugee issue here and overseas have been carting me around the world to have filmed conversations with various people. I think they've cast me as David Attenborough, to be <laughs> And uh, it's been fascinating to see um, how things are in other parts of the world. The most striking, I think, well, actually, one very depressing thing was in the, the UN Refugee Summit last September uh, in New York, where I went along, and I was horrified to hear President Obama single out five countries for special praise about their treatment of refugees. They included, of course, Sweden and Canada and Australia. <gasps> I mean, there must be some kind of trade deal in the back of it, but... It was horrifying. But the most interesting place was in May this year, they took me, amongst other places, to Jordan. Now, Jordan is a very interesting country. It's, it's geographically interesting because it's got Israel, Palestine on the west, it's got Iraq on the east, and it's got Syria on the north. And depending on what's going on in the world, quite a few people turn up in Jordan just asking for protection. Um, when I was there, there were about a million refugees, most of them Syrian, living in the community. They've just walked across the border. Okay, they're, they're, they're what we would call illegal. They're not boat people, they're shoe people, I suppose. <laughs> but 
they've just walked across the border asking for protection. They're not detained. They're allowed to live in the community, just like that. They're allowed to work. Um, uh, uh, and I spent a couple of days at the Alzatari refugee camp. Not detention centre, camp. Three or four kilometres south of the Syrian border. In Alzatari, and it's a really interesting comparison with what we do to refugees, in Alzatari there are 80,000, when I say 80,000 refugees living there in that camp, an open camp. They can come and go. They can get jobs outside. They can leave in the morning, come back at night. And in Alzatari there are 2,000 shops set up by refugees and run by refugees, including two shops where you can hire bridal gowns. That sense of optimism is something which refugees who manage to get here completely lack. Uh, that's the way you treat people. That is the way you treat people if you're a decent sort of person. And what the policies of both parties have done since 2001 is to betray the true character of this country. And we should all be up in arms. We should all be protesting against it, not just out of concern for the refugees, but out of concern for what this country is. That's Anyway, I, I'm going to take 20 seconds and give you a couple of alternatives, since that's what I was meant to talk about. One, um, you want to stop drownings? OK, I mean, the fact is that seeking asylum is a dangerous process. That people perish. It's been the fact of, through all of history. Anyway... Uh, but if you're really serious about wanting to stop the drownings, OK, well, set up refugee processing areas in Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia. They're the three places which provide the most regular pathways into, into Australia and the trickling numbers that they come in. Um, give some money, give some money to those countries or to, or to IOM to set up genuine processing there. And people who are assessed as refugees will be safely resettled. No more boat people, no more people smugglers, genuine safe resettlement. You need the cooperation of countries like Canada, United States, European countries, New Zealand and so on. But it would work. Problem is that some people would fail because uh, people who come down that way know that the last step is dangerous if the last step is safe, then you'll get more tyre kickers coming along. That's a problem. An alternative. Um, first of all, in any event, shut down offshore processing. It's brutal, it's ridiculously expensive, and it, it puts us in shame. Um, accept that as a consequence, the boats might start coming again. If people are desperate enough, they will try and reach safety somewhere. Um, uh, and if... If they start coming, then by all means detain them initially, but for a maximum of one month. Use that one month for preliminary health and security processing, um, and after one month, release them into the community on a visa which requires that they stay in regular contact with the department. Checking them with the post office a couple of times a week would be a good way of doing that. They're allowed to work, basic to human dignity, they're allowed full access to Medicare and Centrelink benefits. And fourth, crucially, until their refugee status is finally determined, they must live in a specified regional town or city. When I say regional, I'm not meaning, I'm not meaning, you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, but, you know, in the, in the countryside, not in the coastal capitals. Now, let's see how that would look. Let's suppose that the arrival rate of boat people suddenly rockets up and stabilises at 25,000 a year, the highest ever since 1788 anyway. Um, let's assume that happens. Uh, it's highly unlikely because there is a ring of steel that 
Lucy mentioned, around the northwest coast. So we're just guessing at that, but let's pretend. And let's assume against all the evidence that every single one of them remains on full Centrelink benefits for the whole time. What's it going to cost? 500 million a year, you know. But all of that would be spent in regional towns and cities, which is good for them because, you know, they're, they've got populations that are shrinking, there's empty accommodation and uh, there are empty shops in the high street. So it would be good for regional Australia. Um, what are we spending at the moment brutalising people? Well, about 3,000 million a year. We could save millions, billions of dollars, billions of dollars a year by treating people decently and we could help regional Australia at the same time. What about giving that a try? What about seeing if Labor will embrace a policy like this? What about seeing if something like this could be done so as to help restore our sense of decency as a country? That's an alternative. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yeah, well, that was uh, Julian Burnside. He was also speaking at a forum at the International Bookshop a couple of weeks ago. There are a couple of events that you might like to know about in relation to this particular issue. Tomorrow, Sunday, 2pm, State Library, Human Rights Day. Uh, there's going to be a big rally uh, in support of human rights. And uh, also there's going to be a doco being played at ACME on Tuesday, uh, 6.30 to 10.30. It's called Shokar, Please Tell tell, tell Us the Time. Shokar, Please Tell Us the Time. It's uh, by Barus Bokani, the uh, journalist, the uh, Kurdish journalist who's been on Manus, who's a, a detainee, uh, who's been uh, sending many of the uh, reports uh, back to Australia about what's going on in Manus. Uh, he uh, made a documentary on his uh, telephone and it's been shown at uh, ACME on Tuesday coming, 6.30 to 10.30, and they're potentially going to have a live cross to talk with uh, Beris Bokani on that night. So uh, it's been put together by uh, Refugee Action Collective and ACME. So uh, very interesting stuff. Now you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're pushed for time. So we're going to go straight to the Vox Pop put together by Black Betty. As I said, Black Betty is one of the 3CR broadcasters, Black Noise Radio, Thursday 2 to 3pm. She was down at the Victorian Parliament House when Lydia Thorpe, the first Indigenous woman to be in Victorian Parliament, gave her maiden speech. I'm from Canada. Uh, she's the first Indigenous woman, and I'm really excited to see how they induct her today. My name is Calgum Edwards, Calgum Choco Howard Edwards. I'm a Palawa Bunurang Yorta Yorta Muddy Muddy and Tanarang on my mother's side. And um, 
Tell me, why are you here today to support Lydia? I'm, I'm here to support Lydia all, all, all the way. Not that I vote or anything like that for no thing, but um, to, have, to have our first Aboriginal woman in Parliament here is, is history, is history, you know, and I'm very proud to be here and part of uh, history-making, uh, I guess, yeah. I'm Michelle, I'm from my parents, and I'm here to support Greens. How exciting is it for you to see an Aboriginal person be elected to the Victorian Parliament for the very first time? It's long overdue. It's long overdue. And hopefully, you know, things can start happening now. Thank you. Gavin Moore from Swan Hill. Why are you here today, Gavin? Uh, To support Lydia Thorpe. Yeah, she's our voice. So... It's radio, so for people who weren't here today to see this, can you explain for the people out in Radio Land what we just saw there, the smoking ceremony? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just a welcome to country, asking the spirit of the place, can we be here and stuff, and, and Lydia's come down, and, and it's, yeah, it's been great to see her. Yeah. Do you think it's been too long that we've had an Aboriginal person elected into Victorian Parliament oh, for, for us? Oh, for sure, for sure. It is too long now. Now, yeah, now we've got a voice, so hopefully yeah, things will change. Lydia's the right woman to do that, for sure. Yes, he's a very strong voice, comes from a strong strong family and, and tribal group, so yeah. And how deadly is it? A Thorpe is the first uh, family name, Aboriginal name in the Victorian Parliament. Too deadly. Yeah, that's deadly, all right. Yeah, good. Um, my name's Austin Nicholson. I'm from Gunnarokurnai and Wurundjeri country. What are you doing here today, bro? Smoking ceremony with me dad, doing welcome to country. We're on radio. Can you explain for those people out there who didn't see it um, what they, what you did here today, bros? Uh, spiritual cleansing and um, just welcoming the people that haven't been welcomed yet to country, properly styles. A lot of people here to support Lydia this afternoon too, which is really good to see, hey? Yeah, I am. I'll let you go, bros. You're nearly faint and we'll let you go. Thank you. See you, bros. Clinton Nan, um, well, Melbourne-born and bred breed, but... Arubian, um, Meriamur people, and Kuku people of Cape York. An historical day here today. How exciting! The first Aboriginal person in the Victorian Parliament. I know, it's only taken 161 years to get here. So there's another 160 years. We'll be owning the joint like we should. Yeah. <laughs> take over that house, eh? That's right. It'll be the Black House. <laughs> and we're so proud to, of Lydia and her achievement and just of everyone because it's a group effort and the Greens and, and just our community, her family, everyone behind it because no one gets anywhere like that alone. And this shows that our, our unity, our power, our strength still today, 160 years one year later and we're here and this is a great day to celebrate and be proud of who we are uh, my name's bill nicholson jr i'm from the wurundjeri people the traditional owners of majority of melbourne beautiful country of course we're standing on here today of course we are on radio can you explain uh, the ceremony and what you did uh, for people out there who are listening today well, for thousands of years, people have been spiritually cleansed when they've been invited onto our country and gone through Tandar and Naji, the uh, Welcome to Country ceremony. Uh, so today, I suppose symbolically, uh, we, we, burnt, we lit a fire, we burnt the leaves, the gum and the cherry balat, native cherry, and uh, we smoked Parliament House out in the symbolism of cleansing of place, of individual, and I suppose uh, giving Lydia a good spiritual, cultural start to her career as a politician. So, 
a very significant historical day, the very first time this has been done indeed on the steps of Parliament for Blackfellas, the first yes. Aboriginal person being elected today into Parliament House. Too deadly, a eh? Too long, do you think it's been? Oh, yeah. Well, um, we should have had people in Parliament back in the 1880s when people like William Barrack were petitioning for it, then William Cooper later on. And, uh, and, and William Cooper was around in the 30s and 40s, so that's almost 100 years ago, and we finally got someone in here. And we've got to say, we've got to thank the wider community out there in Northcote who actually voted for Lydia to get her in, because we don't have the numbers in the Aboriginal community to vote people into government, and that's always been our biggest issue. Do you think we'll see uh, much more representation of blackfellas in Parliament into the near future since uh, Lydia's set such a precedent? One thing I know about our next generation is they're, they're positive, they're strong, they're more educated and they know their identity. So if this doesn't give them a bit of an inspiration, I don't think nothing will. So I could really see a lot of our younger people coming through the ranks wanting to have, the, you know, have our voice being heard properly. Uh, Paola Bella and um, a Wemba Wemba Ngunditjmara woman originally from Machuca in Footscray now. Are you as excited as what I am today to be um, coming into Parliament House to see the very first black fella elected? Yeah. Too long, do you think, it's been? Uh, well, yeah, probably, but I think it's the exact right timing and Lydia's the exact right person to be in there. And I've just been having goosebumps all day uh, in the smoking and woke up thinking about it, woke up thinking, I wonder how Lydia's feeling this morning. And she just looked magnificent coming down the stairs. Looks so beautiful and proud. 34 degrees days, though, and wearing that possum skin cloak, the poor darling, but it looked beautiful. How much of a difference do you think Lydia will make uh, in the Parliament? I think she's going to make a huge difference. I think she already has, just through the election and the fact that she didn't just win a seat, but that she, um, you know, it was a landslide win. Um, And I think she, you know, I think she shocked everybody. Um, Maybe not us, because I think we know how determined and how effective a leader she is um, and I think she's going to make a big difference for the future. Yeah, I think you just said something really important there. I, I too myself uh, wasn't shocked at all. I think I knew from the beginning that Lydia would be elected um, because she's such a strong candidate and yeah. I know she'll do really good for the community so thank you for your time Paula. Thank you. So I'm Karen Jackson, people call me KJ I'm Yoda Yoda Brap Brap and um, I live in Footscray how are you feeling about being here today for Lydia to see her elected into the Victorian Parliament? Oh, I'm just so ecstatic and just um, a little bit overwhelmed, but just so excited. I just, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I can't imagine how she's feeling because for me it's like a dream come true finally to have a black fella in, in the Victorian State Parliament House. It's just amazing. Yeah. I was speaking to a brother before who said it's been something like 161 years, so let's hope it's not another 161 <laughs> until we see further representation. I oh, know. Let's hope it's a bit of a tide that turned, you know, it's because um, people were talking about how, how it was going to be tough at, because that was a Labor seat and, you know, Greens had never won that before. So there might be a bit of a tide turning in the community where they go, let's have a black person, let's have an Aboriginal person, you know. They're on the ground, they know what's going on, and Lydia put in the hard yards, you know. If we can get a few more black faces in the seats parlour, which is amazing. Thank you for your time. No hey, it's Kim Kruger, born and bred here in Wurundjeri country, and from my Murray, from up north. And how wonderful we're seeing an Aboriginal woman elected for the first time, eh? Uh, it's pretty amazing. For me, I think it's... Um, not so much as participating in the parliamentary system, but the character of um, Lydia and her background and the interactions that I've had with her and her family over the years. 
Um, I think she she's not just any other black fella going into Parliament. It's um, oh, there's her nan going in now, and her mum. Round of applause for Marge and Nan. Beautiful. Yeah. But yeah, like what I was saying before about, um, I think it's her character that's important, and 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 the things she stood for in the past, and and her understanding of, um, I think most importantly, a clans-based treaty. Um, you know, watching the treaty process here in Victoria, I've been really disappointed and disengaged actually in, in, in the cons- so-called consultation process. It hasn't been consultative or representative at all, in my opinion. Um, and, um, and to look at the, what, you know, the national conversation too around constitutional recognition. So I think um, early on, Lydia and the people around her have had a really good understanding of what sovereignty means. Um, it, it aligns with what I understand it to be. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and thanks very much, Black Betty, for going down there and uh, finding out what happened on the first day of Lydia Thorpe's first Indigenous woman in Victorian Parliament. That day was a big day. And on the line we've got Debbie Brennan. She's from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. G'day, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Annie. I've, uh, I was fascinating to, fascinated to hear that... Uh, uh, Milo Yipanopoulos was called a conservative celebrity on uh, Channel Seven News, but uh, he and the uh, Sun Herald called him a conservative speaker. But he's not—he's more than that, isn't he? Yes, it's interesting how the right wing likes to use that word uh, to downplay what he actually is and make him sound, um, in their view, respectable. Um, he is. A, uh, he is a celebrity, he's a celebrity of the alt-right and the, and the one percent. He's a, uh, well, he's got, he's very close to, um, Nazis and in fact the views that he puts forward are those views that fascists share. So he's, he is about as far to the right of the extreme that you can get. And it was interesting also to find out that after the events on last Monday outside uh, Eaton uh, Flemington Road, that uh, it's the corner of Flemington Road and Stubbs Road, where uh, people were protesting against his ability to have a forum, that uh, one of the poli- uh, Labor politicians is, was quoted as saying that uh, we've got two groups who pretty much set out to try and cause violence and try and get on TV. So police are there to try and protect, protect the general public. What's your view on what happened? Well, that what what you just uh, summarised there is pretty typical. It's something that um, has been said over the last two and a half years, ever since um, there has been counter-organising from our communities against the far-right and fascists, um, as though uh, we are talking about two violent extremes and the police being neutral, according to the story, um, are in the middle, which is far from the truth. Um, 
Monday was a very good example of of what actually is the case. Uh, Monday was where um, Milo Yiannopoulos' um, event in Melbourne ended up being in Flemington, as you say, um, just immediately across the road from the Flemington um, Housing Commission flats, where uh, many refugees, um, many of them Muslim, um, live. Uh, to have the the various um, splintered Nazi groups there, um, and this is something that Milo's uh, presence has been doing, um, which is to, uh, in fact, its its purpose partly is to coalesce these fascist groups and the far right. So to have those groups there, um, and the police uh, in their in their full armed presence, um, complete with their helmets and shields, um, showed how things align. Uh, so we were there, when I say we, I, I'm talking about not only Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, but many, many other groups were there, um, probably about 500 of us, which is quite amazing when you get only an hour's notice where it is. We were there to um, to be outside that Milo event and disrupt it. But then, of course, its location meant that we had another necessity, which was to um, be there with and defend um, the very targets of Milo and the very targets of the fascists and also the targets of the police, because that whole area has a history of police um, targeting of that community and racial profiling. So what we were up against on Monday was um, the 500 or whatever of us were, in fact, countering not only fascists, but heavily armed police. And those police were there to contain us, not the Nazis, but us. Yeah, there were 300 police. And uh, my own experience uh, uh, at these uh, events, that in actual fact, the police always protect the fascists. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's been shown time and time and time again, especially over these last couple, uh, you know, two and a half years. It is, it, it's there in front of our eyes. So, yes, that whole story of neutrality is just a complete fabrication. The the um, it, as you said, it was an hour before people, just before the event happened, that p- people were told where to go if they wanted to stand up and be counted in relation to, uh, you know, reviling his message. Uh, but obviously, the police and the uh, uh, fascists knew already. They must have. Yeah, I mean, they were. They were ready for it. Right. And, I mean, like, it's hard to know. Well, I'm sure the police certainly knew long before where the location was going to be. And um, so, yeah, it's not surprising that they were, the police were certainly um, prepared uh, to do their their thing. Um, And as far as the Nazi groups are concerned, probably 
they had information too. Now, I was interested in uh, the uh, Nazi group people, leaders, were actually quite emboldened because they attacked mm-hmm. people, didn't they? Yes, they did. So we had we had um, the the Patriot Blue, um, that's the Neil Erickson crowd, uh, well, a few of them. Um, we had uh, Blair Cottrell there. We had um, the Soldiers of Odin. We had the True Blue crew. They were all there, and um, they were in the the middle. So we there on Racecourse Road, the corner of Stubbs and Racecourse. We had um, the residents of the flats who uh, came out um, solidarizing with with our side, of course. So they were on their side of Racecourse Road. We had the Nazis that were in Racecourse Road, and then we were on the other side of Racecourse Road. And, of course, the police were there in the middle, pretty much protecting the Nazis. So the Nazis were able to have free play in whatever they wanted to do. They um, they did attack our side, the Nazis. In fact, they came after one of our marshals, um, beat him with one of their very heavy-duty um, flagpoles, in fact, broke it over him. Mm. Um, the police intervened, and, of course, who did they take away? They took away our marshal. Um, they, uh, and the Nazis were able to then go, go on with what they were doing. The Nazis were also, of course, threatening um, the, the Flats residents were any of the, the were side. any of the fascists arrested? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I, I'm sure they weren't. I, uh, reports are that two were arrested, and um, one was our marshal and someone else. So yeah, right. I am not aware of Nazis being arrested. Yeah, yeah. It 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 fits in with all the things I've I've experienced and seen. And the other thing that is quite clear is the. Uh, Lush, lush way that the police use uh, capsicum spray. Mm. Unbelievable. Mm. Mm. Yes, yes. They, they. Um, well, they're trigger happy. Um, so, you know, they any any basically any excuse they use it, and of course they used it freely on Monday. Yeah, and people have this idea that uh, it's um, an effective way of dispersing people, but it's not uh, permanently harming. But in actual mm. fact, it's incredibly harming, mm. and it's mm. it, it, and I'm sure mo- a lot of people who haven't seen it are unaware of just how dense and horrific it is. Well, yes, and it's it's potentially um, lethal. Mm. Uh, it can kill people, and. Um, if if not that, it certainly um, injures them badly, as you say. And in fact, um, the medics who are always there, um, you know, there to treat us, um, can't they they can't overestimate the danger, and they're constantly giving out information what to do when you're sprayed, and afterwards, it's a very very. Um, injurious, dangerous substance. And for them, for the police to be able to use that and, and as you say, claim that it's just a way to disperse the crowd, it is not that innocent whatsoever. 
No, it's, in my view, I've uh, I've seen this, and it's it's quite mm. weird. And the the other thing, just before we finish, is uh, the. Uh, Police are obviously defending their sense of uh, neutrality by mm-hmm. having it announced that uh, the police or the government saying that uh, they're going to charge the venue forty or fifty thousand mm. dollars for the uh, cost of the uh, pr- protection of the public. Yes, well, um, yes, that that is well, and the thing is too that. Um, whether they do or they don't, I frankly think is neither here nor there because mm. um, that is simply um, for show. And um, I think the reality or the, 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 the most important reality is what you and I have just been discussing, which is the side, the police have a clear side, the side is, on, is the fascists against those of us from communities, diverse communities, um, and and the power that they use, the power that they use, the armed power that they use against our side. That's yep. what matters. Yeah, and also it's really interesting that Milo Innanopoulos was allowed to come in without any problems at all, while just relatively recently a Palestinian spokesperson wasn't allowed to come in to come to the Marxist conference, for example. That uh, yeah, I mean that that's very that's very telling. Um, of course, something that uh, campaign against racism and fascism says is that we would have opposed any appeals to the government to ban Milo Yiannopoulos um, simply because we don't call on the state, the, the government, to use its powers because it uses those powers as we saw with the the Palestinian example that you just cited, and they use those powers against us, you know, working-class people, people who are fighting for for social justice. Those are the targets of their powers. But yes, still, your, your point is a very important one. It's very selective in who they use those powers against, and the fact that Milo was invited to speak in Parliament, and he spoke in Parliament. That is something to worry about. Thanks for talking to us today, Debbie. Thanks very much, Annie. A weak solidarity, Becky team listener, when the entertainment world was thrilled by a riveting song and dance routine from that world-renowned duo, the Don and Ben Union. Otherwise known as U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor, and his Zion counterpart, Benjamin Not Another Yahoo, as they gyrated in unison to the Holy City, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, interspersing their singing and dancing with bursts of witty repertoire. The holy city belongs wholly to Zion. Donald had him rolling in the aisles. Great line, Donald, great line. (laughs) Benjamin fell about laughing, patting Donald on the back. And Donald was warming to his act. If the non-land, non-people had some right to East Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the song would say that. (laughs) Ha ha, great point, Donald. Benjamin couldn't stop laughing as they belted out another chorus before high-kicking off stage arm in arm. 
There was slight discord in the union, as Donald insisted the famous Fun, Fun, Fun Act must obviously be the Don and Ben Union, while Benjamin has strongly insisted it must obviously be the Ben and Don Union. But that aside, despite the live audience, as opposed to a dead audience, I suppose, no, the audience in the theatre loving the show, standing ovation, encore, 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 and the local critics in respectable media like the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Post, giving it rave reviews. The Palestinian terrorist non-land non-people and the terrorist supporters of the non-people claimed Donald had sung from the wrong songbook. Backstage, not backstage, front stage, great, great. Uh, Sorry, Donald, front stage, Donald said his decision would assist the peace process. This great best decision in the history of decisions will assist by preventing the terrorists wasting their time and everyone else's valuable time. It will make the non-land, non-people realize there is no hope for the peace process. How dare the terrorists waste my very, very, very valuable time? Bad people, bad, bad, evil. But having said that, Donald conceded there could be peace. My very, very, very close friend, Benjamin, great man, great man. And I agree, there could be peace tomorrow if the non-people would only accept that they will never have a land of their own. Stop trying to steal other people's land. That would be fantastic. After all, they have shown by their terrorist attacks on poor Benjamin's country, they have no right to any land. Bad, bad. But seriously, we don't do this often with Donald, but in this case, credit where credit's due. Full marks for honesty. Well, honesty is his middle name, of course. Donald Honesty Trample the Poor. For as he said, he couldn't understand. Well, that phrase covers just about everything, but in this case, couldn't understand why previous U.S. of big supremos, since the U.S. of agreed with the world that the non-people's country be converted to Zion, had not recognized Jerusalem when they all supported Zion 100%. So, Donald, full marks for honesty, and we can be sure the U.S. of will continue its crusade as a neutral peace broker. The poor Zion train killer lot have been forced to turn their weapons, reluctantly as always, on these non-people who refuse to accept Donald's recognition of reality. And that non-person, non-state terrorist Hanan Ashwari had the temerity to claim Donald's decision would encourage extremists. How dare she encourage terrorists, proving what a mistake it was to award her the Sydney Peace Prize as reasonable, rational supporters of Zion screamed and screeched at the time. Let's hope next year they correct the mistake by awarding the Peace Prize to the Don and Ben Union. Uh, Correction. Uh, Sorry, Benjamin, the Ben and Don Union. Donald claiming his decision the vast world majority of the U.S. and Zion against the huge minority of everyone else would assist the peace process. The cynical might ask, what peace process? But his claim is right up there with our big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull claiming credit for the same-sex marriage victory. What's the history of that again? Oh yes, Parliament can't vote, Malcolm said, so 122 million plus waste of public funds later, Parliament votes.
I take credit for having the courage to withstand the attacks I knew I would be under because I lack the courage to stand up to the dear baby Jesus supporters who determined my policies. We did bestow the That Wasn't Absolutely Necessary Award of the Week on Malcolm last week for his quote announcing the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Very Gentle Mission into the Good Good Banks. It's not going to put capitalism on trial, which didn't come as the surprise of the week. So congratulations again, Malcolm. Your That Wasn't Absolutely Necessary Award is on the way. Uh, Malcolm, it's good that all those people ripped off by the almost daily scandals uh, will be able to claim compensation. Uh, no, that won't be covered. We, we feel it is outside the scope of this very gentle mission or the very gentle mission part of the scope to look at such matters. What, like the banks ripping off big time? Exactly. That is already in the public domain, so why waste time investigating what everyone knows? But... The Minister for Smashing Evil Union Superfunds, Kelly Oda, Why Are Unions So Evil, clarified, but we must protect good true blue Aussie mums and dads workers from the evil union bosses who sit on the boards of their super funds, which only perform better than the retail bank and financial institution funds by cheating their members. Uh, in what way, Kelly? by not extracting the huge fees banks and financial institutions quite properly charge, thereby undermining the sacred market forces principle of competition policy. Actually, Kelly did say, direct quote again, members' money should be protected from being misused by vested interests, which is why we have to hand it all to the banks. Let's hope the hand the evil union funds to our mate section of the con mission achieves its aim and workers enjoy the benefits of those independent men and women in suits at their favourite bank. On finance and Her Most Gracious Majesty, we tend to forget the numbers of sponges and hangers-on and obscenely paid doll budgers in the gang of inbred surrounding Her Most Gracious, like her son Anne Screwyou, who mostly we forget exists. He's the one who was sprung doing some dodgy trade deals or other. Well, this week he came out in all guns blazing, defending his mum over those revelations she has all this money invested in a tax haven or two. And his watertight defence? The money's invested in a country in which she's the head of state. <laughs> well, that explains that, just doing her empirical duty. Although Anne Screwyou's further defence did have me a bit baffled. And she pays tax on the investments, he declared. Now, hang on, the Paradise Papers that revealed his mum's tax haven investments implied she invested there not to spread her goodwill among her loyal subjects, but to achieve the very purpose of tax havens. What a devoted monarch. Not paying tax back to Donald when that white true patriot screamed Britain first as he murdered a Labour Party politician, he was proudly exercising his right to free speech. And he would respect her right to the point of not murdering her if only her free speech agreed with his free speech. A point exercised by Donald as he twitted Britain first fascist material declared by everyone but Donald and the fascists and that great American institution, the Ku Klux Klan as fake news. Believe me, 
great, great me. Believe me, fake news is not fake news when the fake news it's faking is not fake. But this non-fake fake proves my anti-Islam restrictions are protecting good U.S. citizens who agree with me. Great me. Great. Uh, but you say your restrictions are not aimed at Muslims. These greatest ever restrictions ever in world history are not anti-Muslim. They are pro-me, the greatest pro-me ever. Great, great. Everyone knows not everybody in those countries is Islam. And the restrictions don't apply to my very, very, very good friends, the liberty, freedom, and democracy-loving Saudi royal family, for instance. U.S. up first. Very good. Very good. Sadly, to paraphrase a true blue Aussie saying, poor Donald may soon be in with Flynn. As the twit twitted, he knew his national security advisor had lied to just everyone, and imagine how abraded Donald's sensitivities would be over someone lying to just everyone. But then, as the proverbial hit the fan, fan, I have the greatest number of fans ever. Great, great. Oh, yes, okay, Donald, thanks. As the proverbial hit, his lawyer said he, the lawyer, had sent the twit, apparently sitting up till the wee small hours with Donald, then seizing Donald's smart thingy and twitting away, and Donald said it was terrible, terrible that the FBI had not charged evil Hillary, but had charged a great man like his mate, the former senior trained killer, who disturbingly has pleaded guilty and promised to spill the beans. Showing Donald assured us as the scales of justice teeter a little closer to the Oval Office, the FBI is a biased institution whose reputation for fairness is in tatters. And therein lies the solution to preserving liberty, freedom and democracy. Fire the FBI. Which, although we'd do it for all the wrong reasons, wouldn't be a bad result. Finally, as the Minister for Concentration Camps, etc., Peter Duffer's intellectual soulmate Barnacle is back, didn't we hear the collective national sigh of relief, particularly from Malcolm, who said the results showed how everyone just hated Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Little Billy Shorten Ambition. Perhaps, though, before boasting of an inevitable result in Blue Ribbon, Hayseed and Sheepshit Party territory, Malcolm might have considered what could happen in the next by-election featuring his tennis court jester. Good morning. And that's Kevin for the year. He'll be putting up his, his uh, socks. He's got his program next week, but then after that, he's uh, on holidays for the next five weeks. So... Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, on the line we've got Don Donald Sutherland. How are you, Don? I'm very well, Annie. I'm very sad to hear that I'll miss my Kevin over the next few weeks. <laughs> I think you'll be joined by some others as well. He does a good roundup of the week. Uh, we're going to do a, a bit of a roundup of what's been going on in the industrial uh, landscape in Australia, aren't we? Uh, yes, we'll have a try because there is a hell of a lot happening. Sure of, is. Uh, many uh, different uh, points from the point of view of uh, workers and their families. Uh, so uh, what do you think we ought to start with? Well, you wanted to start off with sexual harassment and domestic violence leave as union issues. And it is. It's growing some steam, isn't it? 
Well, it certainly is, and I think that um, it's illustrative of um, a rising of uh, the women in the union movement, which has been on a consistent trend, and I think uh, increasing numbers of men uh, who have tended to dominate uh, the union movement over the decades are recognising just how important and how much uh, and uh, how, how important the struggles that are specific to the needs of women are becoming in our in our day to day concerns, and particularly this campaign uh, around uh, paid domestic uh, violence and family leave is really a very important one. It is capable of being prosecuted at the level uh, by workers at the level of enterprise bargaining, and not impossible to get. Uh, clauses into enterprise agreements uh, that provide for uh, uh, at least five, but preferably 10 days of paid leave at that level. But of course, what this campaign is trying to do is to create a new national employment standard that makes it available to all uh, victims of domestic and family violence, that they have paid time that enables them to be able to deal with the problem that uh, it obviously pre presents to them. Uh, and associated with that, of course, we have the, uh, the focus upon, the correct focus upon uh, the problem of sexual harassment, overwhelmingly perpetrated by men, of course. And uh, uh, it, I think it's just a terrific uh, development in our union movement that these are becoming uh, centre stage instead of as uh, just associated... Uh, uh, campaigns and relatively isolated campaigns. Yeah, I've been to a number of uh, the rallies in support of this and uh, some of the people there have told me that uh, uh, it, the reason for why it's a union issue is, one, because it affects working people, but also because the unions are the only organisations that actually stand up for workers at all. Well, the union record is all, has not always been as strong as that, uh, and uh, I think that uh, both in, inside uh, the union official structure, there has been a big effort to ensure that men are fully aware of how uh, sexual harassment occurs, and uh, have been. Uh, there has been a lot of work done inside union structures, that is, inside the paid union official structure part of a union uh, and also extending broadly to the broader membership about what both uh, domestic, the implications of both domestic violence and what it means for women and children and then secondly the impact on uh, a worker's life of the experience of sexual harassment. That has been improving in the last decade or so uh, but now we're seeing as I say become a much more uh, front and centre and more highly prioritised general campaigning issue. Now, we'll leave that because uh, that's well expressed. And uh, another area, two things, wage theft and extreme tax avoidance practised by Australian and foreign corporations. They actually go together, don't they? And maybe even Michaela Cash uh, refusing to uh, answer questions about her officer's role in the, in the uh, coverage of the uh, raid on the 
AWU offices and the suppression of workers' rights and their and wages. These, these things all go together. Well, these have all been broiling around in the last couple of weeks since we last talked, and there have been since we last last talked. There have been uh, new uh, confirming revelations of extensive uh, wage theft, uh, including, for example, I'll give two examples. Uh, in northern New South Wales, the Meat Workers Union has done an excellent job in both organising and educating and researching the extent of wage theft in a big uh, uh, meat processing firm that uh, uh, uses extensive use of imported Section 457 workers, their hyper-exploitation, and associated with that, the deliberate cooperation of the local council in assisting the company to do that, and in doing so, ensuring that the hundreds of uh, underemployed and unemployed young people in the area who are Australian citizens, Australian residents, are not able to get work of that type. And the work done by the Meat Workers Union is exemplary. The other example is the confirming revelations again about the hyper-exploitation of Aboriginal workers in in remote communities through uh, the Work for the Dole program, the CDP program. And the First Nation Workers Alliance is steadily building support for a campaigning intervention to challenge that hyper-exploitation as well. This is all under Michaela Cash's purview. This is her watch. She is one of the employer's champions and a leading champion in advancing their desire to hyper-exploit big parts uh, and increasing parts of uh, the working class. And uh, she, of course, has been found out uh, through the work of uh, a couple of Labor senators, but particularly Senator Doug Cameron in the Senate Estimates Committee, for having systemically, systematically, uh, about six weeks ago, misled the Senate about um, what was happening with the uh, federal police raids on the Australian Workers' Union. And this week, she, earlier in the week, she was due to answer questions including about the disappearance of her chief media advisor uh, from uh, not not just his removal from his job, but his disappearance from access to court processes, uh, his ability to take his work phone with him when he left the job, which, of course, would have information on it about the phone calls he was making to people in the media and to other places that would enable uh, cash to uh, uh, highlight um, uh, the uh, the lies about the Australian Workers' Union and also the leader of the opposition. So uh, she used, in her latest appearance earlier this week, the excuse of public immunity because there is now a federal police investigation into uh, what was going on between her office and the media. Well, uh, what has now become apparent is that she relied upon her uh, defence of public immunity to enable her not to answer the questions that were being put to her in the Senate, 
on a letter from the federal police saying that police investigation is underway and that she implied that the federal police said that there was a public immunity. Well, it turns out that the letter from the federal police does no such thing. Well, it's impossible anyway. Um, I'd hate so, to go to her as a lawyer. I mean, she's a lawyer. I, I, I would despair if she didn't have the entire government to play with and the federal police to play with. You'd think that she would have very little ability as a legal representative. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty astounding that she would so drastically use the public immunity test to defend herself when on the basis of uh, of saying something uh, that the uh, 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 purportedly said by the federal police that they didn't actually say. Wow. And the, 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 the extra add-on to that, of course, is that she was allowed to get away with it because of uh, the increased attendance of other uh, Liberal and National Party senators in the Senate Estimates Committee that gave them the numbers to protect her in doing so. Wow. So uh, oh, that's that, really that was all on pretty well on public display. Yeah. And there are excerpts that you can see, including at Doug Cameron's uh, website, uh, that uh, reveal all of that. Wow. Um, I think the other thing to go back to this hyper-exploitation, the national accounts came out last week, and uh, there are many things that have been said about them, but the two things that stand out, I think, from uh, the point of view of our little program, is firstly that uh, household disposable incomes are still falling. Now, these are often regarded, commonly regarded, as a prime indicator of the standard of living. And so we have a continuing fall in the standard of living for the majority of the population. And the second thing that stands out that is not discussed by mainstream economists, including many progressive ones, in fact, all progressive ones that I've looked at, is that, and here we go, when we talk about the hyper-exploitation through wage theft, is that the rate of exploitation of the workforce revealed in the national accounts has catapulted upwards in the last two years or mm. so. And so even the national accounts, which don't provide uh, the way in which the Australian Bureau of Statistics provide the data, is not exactly suitable, but they provide a very strong indication that the rate of exploitation of the Australian workforce is significantly increasing at the present time. I just remind uh, listeners they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're talking to Don Sutherland. Uh, let's move on to the High Court case. Uh, they just had a um, decision that, uh, in actual fact, it's a privilege, in inverted commas, to uh, take protected action. Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, the, the context is that, firstly, the first thing we must um, emphasise is that Enterprise bargaining is, uh, under the current Fair Work Act, uh, has evolved uh, starting way back in 1993 with the Keating government's creation of the new industrial laws. And associated with that, uh, various type uh, regimes of protected industrial action 
During the enterprise uh, agreement period. During bargaining for a new agreement. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So in this situation, um, members of the Australian Workers' Union and other unions have been in a very bitter dispute with SOUGL. And in the context of that dispute back in 2015, the, uh, the uh, members of the AWU wanted to take a form of industrial action to reinforce their claims in the bargaining process, something that they were entitled to do, that was then determined to be um, uh, not available to them. Yeah, it was the, wrong-footed. They, they'd the made, they'd made a... They decided, the Fair Work Commission decided that uh, it wasn't appropriate. And so this new decision, uh, actually, what I've been told, what it means is that uh, if uh, a union, ha- uh, that people have taken protected action when they shouldn't have, uh, from then on in that negotiations, they're no longer allowed to do protected action, even though they're in the enterprise agreement period. Uh, yes. So if they, if they, if that particular, uh, if if the Fair Work Commission has said they're not able to use or use that particular for first particular form of action, and they just leave the matter alone. In other words, they they don't they don't um, disagree with what has been put to them, but uh, they leave the matter as it stands. You're right. What the High Court is saying is that their access to other forms of industrial action are then proscribed. Yeah. Now, the important... I think the first thing about this is, and we get a clue about the thinking behind this High Court, is when they say, in a section on history, they say this, and I'm going to read it out. Mm -hmm. It says, at common law, that is judge-made law, Industrial action in the form of strikes and lockouts was and is, generally speaking, unlawful. In the scheme of things, it is likely to involve a breach of contract and one or more of the industrial torts of nuisance, besetting or inducing a breach of contract, uh, contract, and it goes on. Now, essentially what they're doing is reminding everyone of the history of judge-made law that uh, regards collective action by workers, include, especially in the form of industrial action, as an interference of the relationship between employers and therefore a conspiracy and therefore capable of uh, uh, at least common law damages and possibly jail. So they, they start with the judge-made law to establish their line of thinking about why the Fair Work Act of 2009 uh, means what it says it means, which is that if you engage in a form of action that is, uh, is uh, not, not enabled by the law, then you can't use another form. It's interesting, now, isn't it? Because it actually displays class difference beautifully, doesn't it? And that the law actually is for one class rather than the other. Yes, yes. What we're talking about is the formation of law, industrial law, uh, that is about the protection of capitalism. Yeah. And the common law, that is the judge-made law, 
established the basis for all of that that then was transmitted by parliaments into statute law. And what the, what the, what the High Court is doing is reinforcing in, uh, the meaning of the Fair Work Act must be understood as required to be consistent with that original judge-made law. Now, we then get to, I think, two other points that are important about this. Is that first there was a dissenting judge. Yes. One of the five judges said, "No, the rest of you are wrong." Now, the difference between the majority of four and him was that the majority of four were using a very black letter, highly grammatical uh, interpretation of the words in the Fair Work Act to justify this really pro-capitalist, pro-employer understanding of how the law should work. The dissenting judge said, no, I'm for a common sense approach to what the words are intended to mean. Now, we get to the next point. You have to hurry because we've got hardly any time. And actually, the judge was a woman. The dissenting judge was a woman. Yeah. Yeah, by the name of Gagala. I don't yeah. know much. Anyway, go on. The judges. This is, in a sense, the crunch point. Let's assume that the majority is right. And my reading of the decision is I have a hunch that they are. It proves that the Fair Work Act, two things about the Fair Work Act of 2009 in regard to enterprise bargaining, a regime created by a Labor government. One, those rules are indeed broken. That is reinforced. And secondly, it establishes that they were redesigned in 2009 so that they were worse than what they were under work choices. Oh, God. Oh. That's, that's what flows from the meaning of the majority's decision. And therefore... We, in, across the whole of the union movement, must toughen up our determination for a common campaign that continues to challenge these broken rules and to ensure that there is a significant and fundamental maximum approach to the rewriting of the laws in the context of a possible Labor government or some form of aligned Labor and Greens government. We have to finish there, Don. That's uh, a fabulous way to finish the year. Thank you very much, and we'll be talking to you again next year, hopefully. Season's greetings to everyone, and please, I wish everyone a safe uh, uh, Christmas period and uh, look forward to catching up with you all in the new year. 500 men sacked for refusing to ever cross a line. Union busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the Community Assembly at any time of the day or night. 
For more information and details, call Workers Solidarity on 0401-516-967. Well, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this, for this week. Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. We looked at the refugee issue. We uh, went and listened to the people who were there when Lydia Thorpe did her first speech in Victorian Parliament, first Indigenous woman in the Victorian Parliament. We uh, looked at uh, what happened at on Monday at the uh, um, speech by... M- Milo Yiannopoulos and the outrageous amount of police, etc., etc., and uh, we then went on to uh, look at the industrial relations landscape in Australia. As I said, uh, Asia Pacific Currents is coming up next. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.